If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Video games. Out there, man. The people who make them. The stories behind it all. You're listening to Random Access Memories. By Ron's Pies. Enjoy the show. Every console has its icons, the symbols that represent the ecosystems they're a part of. These mascots, as they'd come to be known, were mostly born in the 80s and 90s as a way to tie the identity of a console with an easily identifiable character. In the 90s, we associated Nintendo with Mario, Link, and Pikachu, PlayStation with Crash, Spyro, and Cloud. But for a newly emerging console from powerhouse software company Microsoft, it was ground zero. There was no identity, no mascot that even your grandma could know the name of. Microsoft was in the unique position to form for themselves the mascot that would become the face for the Xbox brand. The possibilities were truly infinite. Car manufacturers have something they call a halo car. It's the car that identifies what that manufacturer aspires to become. It's not designed to sell in huge numbers, just to make people look at your brand in a way they may not have before. They're designed almost purely to turn heads and make people care about your company. The Ford GT, the Lexus LFA, the Ferrari F40, the Honda NSX. The halo car is the thesis statement for a car manufacturer. It's the best of everything the company has to offer. The culture, the expertise, the passion, and ideas identity of the creators. And for Xbox, their version of the Halo car was a revolutionary first-person shooter that has inspired generations of competitors, is a household name around the globe, and has spawned a multi-million dollar franchise that has attracted the likes of Steve Jobs, Peter Jackson, Bill Gates, Neil Blomkamp, and Steven Spielberg. And that Halo car literally goes by the name of Halo. Welcome to Random Access Memories, a gaming podcast dedicated to the stories behind video games. This podcast is an in-depth look at a variety of the different franchises, developers, and studios around the world that form the greatest entertainment medium in the world. History, conversations, fun facts about franchises you thought you knew everything about, this is Random Access Memories. Random Access Memories is a podcast produced by Ron's Pies, a YouTube channel dedicated to in-depth looks at video games. If you like the podcast, please follow the show on your podcast podcast distribution platform of choice, leave a positive review, and subscribe to the channel. With that, please enjoy the show. My name is Wade Ronspies, and I'm joined by my co-host, Keegan Aylers, and welcome to the show. Let's talk about Halo. Keegan, you love Halo. About a little too much. <laughs> you love Halo more than I do, and I've and I really like Halo. I've been replaying the whole series, um, not just in preparation to do this show, but also with Infinite coming this holiday season. I wanted to catch up, but you you don't even have to catch up. You're just there on a dime. I am. Um, I'm actually I I do plan on actually replaying through them before Infinite because uh, haven't done that in a while. And literally my most my closest achievements on Xbox are tw- my closest twenty are all Halo. Master oh, Chief Collection so once. I, I, I had to like uninstall Master Chief Collection for a little while just to save up space, and it just kept bothering me with like, you're so close to this achievement. Yep. It's like, I know, but I... Yeah, so gotta get a good fun run through for that, and then uh, we'll see how that goes. 
I'm playing. I'm replaying in a really weird order because um, I replayed one through four because the Master Chief Collection has that playlist, just the Master Chief Saga. So I did that, but Reach and ODST aren't included in that. So I did one through four, and then Reach, and now I'm on ODST, and then five. <laughs> so it's just like, eh, whatever. Yeah, I know it's, what happens. it's nuts. Last time I did it, I did Reach, one, two, yeah. but I got to the Metropolis mission, you know, where, oh, and then I did ODST, that's and then true, I finished man. two, and then I did three, four, and five. That's like machete order, but it also was totally chronological. And all on heroic, so... Yeah. Which I've done okay. that with the the Last of Us, where I played up to Winter and then stopped, and then played the Left Behind DLC and then kept going. Yeah. So that's not a foreign concept to me. Oh, I also did that in a weekend. By the way. <laughs> yeah, it, I, it's been, yeah, it's taken me a little longer. Yeah. <laughs> it, it wasn't just me though. I had I had some help. Otherwise, I would have yeah, probably gone helps. insane. Well, that's the, that's the beauty of Halo is oh, that you can play easy. even a single player with other people. At least one friend. Yeah, and you've been playing Halo forever. Yeah, I was 10, so it's been 15 years. It'll Did you start with CE or... CE, yep. Two. I literally... Oh, really? So, it was Christmas of when we were in fourth grade, um, and I wanted... That was the year the 360 came out, but yeah. my mom got me an Xbox, which I was upset about, obviously, because I wanted <laughs> a 360. A 360? Exactly, but I got it, and I still enjoyed it, because, you know, played some of my favorite, some of my favorite games yeah. are on the original Xbox. Did you get the Duke? No. Oh, that it was too late then. Yeah, it was uh I got Nice Little Public one and two and you know oh, obviously great. amazing games. And then my I played C E before on my great uncle's Xbox with my cousins and whatnot, my brother and I did, so I got C E and then my brother came up because I was living elsewhere um at the time and my brother came up he's like guess what i got and i was like what and he's like halo 2 and i was like oh dude no freaking way yeah and he, I, remember, I remember being at school and someone like people bringing halo 2 in their backpacks and be like, check this out dude well it's because oh. they would come with those the um like the little not the hand like the handbook that would be like here's yeah. every enemy here's every weapon and they did the same thing for halo 3 and i thought that was the coolest thing ever <laughs> and i wish i still had those just because it was really cool i remember like i lived in hardington at that time which was about 45 miles 45 minutes from Norfolk so mm-hmm. when we would drive back like you know between back and forth going between my dad oh, and my yeah, mom you read the handbooks yeah and I would read the handbook and I was like this is the coolest thing ever but yeah I remember when we played Halo 2 like the night boat my older brother came we were playing it and we had to go to this party and then my brother like looked at me he's like dude this kind of sucks I was like yeah and then we like look at my mom we're like hey can you take us home so we can go play Xbox? And she's like, yeah, you guys look like you're miserable. And we're like, thank God. So we went we're home and have a played party it. party on Halo. Exactly. Virtual couch, as Bungie called it. <laughs> but we'll get to that later. So you 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 started with CE in 2. Yes. First time I played Halo was 3 at a party. I, th- I feel like that's a trend. Is like A lot of people's first time playing Halo is at a party. Just someone bringing an Xbox. And it's like, what's this? It's Halo. I've heard of this. I'd like to try this. And then you get your ass kicked. But you're like, that was fun. I'd like to do that again. And I, there's a great quote from um, the... Uh, the documentary, one of the documentaries I watched in preparation for this episode, which was like, you hate it, but you love it, and you gotta try it again. You know, like, that's just Halo. Is like, you just suck at it until those five minutes, maybe, where you don't suck at it, and then it's the best thing ever. Dude, yeah. And it's just, yeah, just playing it. Like, like the constant sleepovers when we were kids, when, like, you oh, yeah. moved out of, like, 
just playing like the little games and it was like Halo was your first big boy game and I remember just introducing <laughs> it and just playing like everything and you're just like it's holy shit even this. though it never really Halo's rated M but it's never really been like that mature I always thought it was just for the for the constant teabagging yeah. well just, Halo Infinite is gonna be rated T really I didn't even know yeah. that wow yeah, yeah. I, I'm actually surprised it took this long cause like I remember playing Reach and be like, "There's blood every now and then," but, but it's there's like, no dismemberment. There's like, there's swearing yeah. and stuff like that. But I feel like the ESRB ratings have been a little loosened. Well, kind of. A then. lot of it was just like the tone is mature. Yeah. So, yeah, whatever. But like, Destiny, like you shoot someone in the head and their head explodes. But like, it's like not cartoonish, but it's like a bright white light, and you know, it's yeah. little comical but that and that's rated t so i'm like that makes sense (laughs) yeah but um you ready to talk about halo more more seriously always i guess i I guess listen to me talk about halo for a while and you just chime in every now of course i'm here all right but in order to talk about halo we have to talk about bungie the story of Halo is the story of Bungie, a team of over 600 strong now located in Bellevue, Washington, currently working on Destiny 2, actually the expansion called Beyond Light, which I'm very excited for. But in 1992, Bungie was just two guys in Chicago, Illinois, with three games to their name, Nop, Operation Desert Storm, and Minotaur, The Labyrinths of Crete. Alex Seropian and Jason Jones worked in and out of an apartment in Chicago when they were shipping Minotaur, a top-down RPG that was actually a port of a game Jones had made in 1988. The pair first met at an artificial intelligence class at the University of Chicago. In Bungie's 20th anniversary documentary, Seropian remarked that Jones had, quote, a way cooler computer than I had, which really pissed me off. Once the two linked up and started working together under the name Seropian made to publish Operation Desert Storm, Bungie Software Products Corporation, or just Bungie for short, they got to work with their respective roles. Alex Seropian became the money and marketing guy, while Jason Jones was the programmer and the more creative of the two. On their roles, Jones remarked that, quote, I was working on a game and Alex was trying to start a company. Minotaur sold around 2,500 copies, which was enough to fund another project without the assistance of Seropian's wife, who had been financially supporting them up to that point. Following that minor financial success, Jones and Seropian thought about adapting Minotaur into a 3D perspective, but after that proved to be too difficult for the pair, they decided the best course of action was to do something original for their first 3D project. A first-person shooter heavily inspired by, which is a fancy way of saying very similar to, if not a ripoff of, Wolfenstein 3D. The game was called Pathways into Darkness, and it was designed for the Mac, just like all of Bungie's games had been previously. By modern standards, Pathways into Darkness is an incredibly rudimentary and basic game, but it was pretty remarkable for its time, winning multiple awards and surpassing Bungie's sales expectations. It's the success of Pathways into Darkness that allowed the two-man team to move from a cramped apartment to a full-fledged studio in Chicago's Southside and start hiring some full-time staff. Their first studio wasn't exactly as glamorous as it may seem. When you say they got a studio, you might it might conjure up certain images of what you expect someone nowadays to have in a studio, but their studio would be broken into a couple times, there was a crack house behind the building. Famed Bungie composer Martin O'Donnell said that it, quote, smelled like a frat house after a really long weekend, and many of the staff at Bungie remarked that, in hindsight, the first studio reminded them of something straight out of Silent Hill. So... Bungie had a success, they had a studio, but they wouldn't become Bungie until they released a game that was originally intended to be a sequel to Pathways into Darkness, a game called Marathon. 
Keegan, have you heard of Marathon? Like, maybe in passing, but... I, mean, I have, actually, uh, reading uh, certain uh, Mr. Schreier's uh, book. Ah, yeah. I, uh, Jason got, Schreier. Yeah, Jason Schreier. Listen to his book. Uh, I listened to that in audiobook for a little bit, at your suggestion, uh, mm-hmm. thankfully. I, I appreciate that. Um, if you haven't read that, guys, I highly suggest you go. Was that during the uh, Destiny chapter? Uh, yes, they, it was when, yep, it was when uh, they talked about Bungie. Um, so, mm-hmm. yep, and just hearing them talk about Marathon just very briefly in passing. Um, but that's about, I mean, that's really the extent of what I know of Marathon yeah. and then the previous games, obviously. Well, I will tell you about it. Marathon was the game that made the world notice Bungie, even though it was still limited to a Mac release. It was one of the first first-person shooters to have vertical camera movement, rocket jumping, and a huge focus on story and lore. Marathon also had multiplayer deathmatch modes, where up to eight players could link up their max and fight to the death in up to 10 maps over a local network. The multiplayer mode of Marathon specifically won the Macworld Game Hall of Fame Award for Best Network Game, and the team even said that the reason Marathon took so long to come out was because the team was so enamored with the deathmatch mode. Multiplayer would become the DNA of Bungie, even if Bungie themselves didn't know it yet. Marathon was a huge success. It received rave reviews and sold over 150,000 copies after one year of being on sale. It was Bungie's first hit on the worldwide stage. To many, Marathon was considered to be the Mac equivalent of System Shock, both creating the genre that is now known as the Immersive Sim. Without System Shock, you may not get Deus Ex, Bioshock, Prey, or Dishonored. And without Marathon, you definitely don't get Halo. Bungie's FPS lineage was created very early on in their history, and was cultivated in the sequels to Marathon that arose after the game's huge success. Of course, following Marathon was Marathon 2, Durandal, I think I'm pronouncing that right, which was the first of Bungie's games to have a co-op multiplayer mode. Marathon 2 was even more successful than Marathon 1, which led to another sequel and the final part of the Marathon trilogy, Marathon Infinity. Marathon's incredible success allowed Bungie to grow even larger and begin development on the game that would really shape the studio's future in ways even Bungie never could have imagined. Myth was Bungie's first swing at making a real-time strategy game, and it was an immediate success when it was released in 1997. Many chalk the success of Myth up to the fact that it was, to quote Mike Krahulik, co-founder of Penny Arcade, Myth was an RTS that got rid of all the RTS bullshit. Myth was also the first game Bungie developed simultaneously for both Mac and PC, broadening their audience even further and making the market for their games even bigger. Have you... Do you know of Myth at all? I've very briefly heard of it. I know, obviously, we're born in 95, so we don't really yeah. know too much. I mean, obviously, I haven't really played it, um, but I yeah. know it was a pretty pretty good game. I remember talking to my uncle about it. gameplay of Myth until I was researching this episode. I heard of Myth. Yeah, I talked to my uncle about it. I knew what it looked like. Yeah, I talked to my uncle about it, and he liked it a lot. But yeah, like... Myth, I mean, you talk to a lot of like old school gamers today, old school PC gamers specifically today, and it feels like almost every single one of them has some sort of memory with Myth. Yeah. Myth receives almost universal acclaim, picking up awards from publications like PC Gamer, Macworld, and more. It sold over 350,000 copies, a new landmark for the studio. Myth was huge, enabling Bungie to move studios and even establish a second studio in California aptly named Bungie West. And keep Bungie West in the back of your brain because we'll definitely get to them later. So, after the success of Myth, the inevitable happened. Myth 2. 
And while Myth 2 is a story worthy of its own time, this episode is dedicated to the little sci-fi RTS game they were prototyping during the development of Myth 2. However, Bungie's growing success and that prototype's progress were actually stifled by Myth 2 after a huge, earth-shattering bug was uncovered th the day the game shipped to retailers around the world. The bug was triggered by the game's uninstaller, which would essentially brick the computer it was being uninstalled on, which was kind of what? Uh, people in uh, the documentary, they were kind of saying like, oh yeah, scorched earth, you know, if you want to install un want to install our game, then say goodbye to your computer, you know, <laughs> it's oh like my God. unintentional spite. That is nuts. Imagine the absolute storm if that oh. happened today, oh like especially God. with like Steam, like, because back then, you know, games had like individual, you didn't have launchers. No. You know, like the icon on your desktop was the launcher. Yeah. You didn't have stuff like Steam and Epic and all that where you launch a bunch of games through that. So if imagine people install and uninstall games just on the regular now. So it's imagine uninstalling just like a random game to save space and it just bricks your computer. They That's would, nuts. That developer would never hear the end of it. Well, they wouldn't be a developer anymore. It cost Bungie nearly $800,000 to recall and reprint every single copy of Myth 2 without the uninstall bug, which put the Still Young Studio in major financial jeopardy. There's actually videos of employees at Bungie boxing the new copies of the game themselves. That was how slapdash it was. Good lord. The stakes were now even higher than they had ever been, even more so than when Bungie was a two-man team getting financial assistance from Alex Seropian's wife. Their next game could very well be the make or break point for the studio, which put a lot of pressure on the then three-person team working on prototypes for a futuristic spin on Myth, something codenamed Monkey Nuts, which would eventually be changed to Blam because uh, one person working on it said they wanted to describe it to their loved ones, and they said they were embarrassed calling it Monkey Nuts, so they <laughs> petitioned to have it changed, the codename changed. That's funny. But, but, like, you have to understand, at this point in time, Bungie, and for a while in the future, Bungie is just a bunch of, like, college-aged white dudes, you know? Yeah. So it's like, you know, it, like, they're just a bunch of dudes drinking beer and having fun making games. Yeah, and so, so it's, Monkey Nuts is uh, pretty... The atmosphere is sophomoric, to say the least. Yeah. But this prototype was experimented on extremely heavily, with not even the team working on it really knowing what the final product would be. It was so experimental they didn't even know really what they were experimenting with. It was an RPG, then it was an RTS, then it was mostly settled that it would become an action-heavy third-person shooter after the team realized they wanted the player to be in control of the game's various vehicles and weapons. The idea was that, you know, you have an RTS and you're telling this vehicle to go there, but they want you to actually be controlling the vehicle, and so then that gave them the idea of just like, why not just make the whole game from the player's perspective? So, Bungie had their game, a sci-fi third-person shooter in huge open environments with a plethora of vehicles to take control of, starring the main character, an elite, unstoppable super soldier in green armor called Master Chief. In 1999, Bungie's then-Vice President Peter Tomte, again, I'm gonna butcher a lot of names just because I've never heard these names actually spoken, I've just been reading them in articles and seeing them appear in lower thirds in documentaries, so, um, but he got Bungie an audience with Apple's maestro, Steve Jobs, in order to pitch their prototype for Blam which was originally Monkey Nuts. 
Steve Jobs was apparently very impressed with the project and wanted Bungie's new game renamed, oh yeah, I put right here in the script, renamed to Blam, to be announced and showcased at Apple's 1999 Macworld Conference and Expo. However, just days before the official unveiling of the game, Blam still didn't even have an official title even within Bungie. In fact, it still didn't even have any official music. Everything about this prototype was prone to change at a moment's notice. The entire thing felt like a homework assignment that you forgot to do the night before it was due, so you're just scrambling to get it done in the hallway just minutes before class starts. I'm sure you can relate to that, Keegan. Oh, I know that feeling hard. <laughs> <laughs> I remember getting yelled at in theology yep. class. Famed Bungie composer Martin O'Donnell came up with the melody that would become legendary in the car ride to the studio on the day they were recording the music for the game's official unveiling. They were almost literally building the plane as it was taking off. <laughs> When O'Donnell woke up that morning, he knew they'd be recording something, but he didn't even know what until he showed up at the studio. The only prompts he had from Bungie were the words ancient, mystery, and alien. Everything was so slapdash, Bungie didn't even have time to implement the soundtrack into the game's in-engine reveal itself. They merely printed out the music onto a CD and hit play at the same time they booted up the demo of the game. I didn't even know that. That's actually yeah, pretty cool. cool. Like, that's like... <laughs> that's so it, old school. Yeah, they, they didn't even bother. Like, and the funny thing is that the in-engine demo is basically just a trailer. So yeah, they easily oh yeah. could have just they easily could have just like gone into some editing software through the music track in, but they didn't even have time for that, I guess. That's so or they funny. just didn't even think about it. Did that. you just be the guy just standing there at the at the play button and be like looking and be like, alright, ready? Ready? Okay. But yeah, yeah. All right, they had to sync it up. <laughs> Marty O'Donnell himself was probably on stage because he's so embedded in the sound oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. production of Halo. He was probably like, no one else is pressing play but me. I know exactly what cue to you know. That's it's like, so funny. I yeah. did not know that. That's good though. That's yeah. that's really like, funny. Well a lot of the stuff I didn't even know until I started reading about it. And See, so, so everybody a lot of people listening to this will yeah. know about it until they hear me say it, so it's crazy. Hey, we're learning with everybody else. Exactly. But Bungie miraculously made it all in one piece to Macworld 1999. Steve Jobs himself introduced the game that would eventually go on to change gaming forever, which honestly isn't even hyperbole, with the title Bungie finally settled on after tons of eternal internal debate. Halo. And it's funny because um, when they when they came up with the name Halo, a lot of people in Bungie actually didn't like the name. A lot of people thought it sounded like a perfume or like a lipstick product, like Halo. Halo seemed to be a hugely ambitious project. Open environments, controllable vehicles, an epic story. It's easy to see why Steve Jobs was impressed, even if the reveal trailer seems incredibly silly in comparison to the Halo we know today. Steve Jobs wasn't the only one who was impressed. A software company by the name of Microsoft was building a home gaming console to rival Nintendo. Nintendo and PlayStation. They were building the Xbox. Microsoft was hungry for content for their first console. They needed games that could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the juggernauts of Mario, Zelda, and whatever Sony Computer Entertainment was cooking up for the PS2, which we'd find out would be Jack and Daxter, Ratchet and Clank, Ugh. you know, which Ugh. are worthy competitors. Great. You know? Yeah. Oh, of course. Oh, and Sly Cooper. Shout out to Sucker Punch. Oh, yes. When word came to Microsoft that Bungie was struggling financially after the Myth 2 recalled debacle, which is why that story was important, co-creator of the Xbox, Ed Freeze, saw an opportunity for Microsoft Game Studios to acquire Bungie. It was a win-win opportunity for both companies. Bungie needed the money to survive, and Microsoft needed exciting new games for their new console. The team at Bungie wasn't fully aware of the goings-ons at the top between Alex 
Seropian and Ed Freeze, however. So when Seropian called people to his office to tell them they might be re relocating to a new studio in Seattle, it came as a huge shock to everybody. I was watching the documentary, and like, when they got to this point in the documentary, you can hear someone go like, I just signed a new lease on my apartment. <laughs> really? You know, like, oh, they really, so sad. Like, <laughs> they had no idea. Like, a lot oh of people had no idea this was happening. Oh, or like, God. maybe they knew Microsoft was getting involved, but they had no idea they would have to move to Seattle. Yeah, that'd be terrifying. But, uh, but the deal was made. In 2000, Bungie was acquired by Microsoft Game Studios, and the team would relocate to Microsoft's campus in Redmond, Washington. On the acquisition, Bungie's then-director of cinematics, Joseph Staten, who you can thank for a lot of the great stories in Halo, um, jokingly said, quote, If you're gonna sell your soul, Seattle's a pretty nice place to do it. He was obviously joking, but... <laughs> but that's how a lot of Bungie employees saw it. They were selling their souls. They were the guys who would flip off Microsoft, and now they're working for Microsoft. But Halo was now going to be a major exclusive launch title for Microsoft's upcoming Xbox instead of a PC and Mac release. Sorry, Mr. Jobs. Bill Gates is now the big man in Bungie's life. Bungie had to scrap everything they were working on that wasn't Halo before the big move, too. Now, every single employee from Bungie's Chicago studio was now working on Halo. The transition from sophomoric frat house in Chicago to typical Microsoft software development team in Seattle was difficult, to say the least. A lot of Bungie employees very much preferred independence. They liked being the underdogs, the rebels. They went from wide open studio spaces with a friendly environment and probably an open bar to a studio in a bleak, gray, and organized cubicle office at Microsoft. It really did feel like selling out to a lot of people at Bungie, but Microsoft ultimately respected the work culture of Bungie and allowed them to do with their space at Microsoft what they felt was necessary. According to Ed Freeze, the co-creator of the Xbox and head of Microsoft Game Studios, as I mentioned before, even he didn't have a key to Bungie's area at Microsoft. Bungie was quick to make themselves at home in their new place so they could try to reclaim the studio culture they had in Chicago. Walls were quite literally torn down in Microsoft. Ed Freeze talked about in that documentary how it's like, the people at Microsoft loved that cubicle culture. They said it kept them productive and whatever, but you know, Bungie wasn't really, wasn't just trying to be productive, they were trying to cultivate a fun, working environment. I mean, it'd be boring. I mean, I would think like, oh, yeah. I mean, for some people, obviously it's different, but like, obviously, like you kind of stated, it's a bunch of, you know, young dudes <laughs> hanging out and imagine like just making a game at your friend's house. And then you, you know, you have like Stanley Kubrick posters on the walls, you know, a keg in the corner, you know, big TV with an Xbox hooked up to it. And now you got to go work somewhere where it's all just gray and bleak and boring. It's like, it'd be torture. At this point in time though, Halo was still a third person shooter. Everything about Halo was still pretty abstract and up in the air. And now they had to buckle down and become the, the game for Microsoft's first foray into the console market. And the opportunity wasn't lost on Bungie. They knew that Halo had the potential to be something big game-changing even. The studio that started off as a two-person group making basic RPGs and FPSs was now a giant team in a position to change the industry. They were in a position to set the tone for an entire console generation. You even hear that language being used today. I think even in the documentary, I didn't even say this intentionally to mimic anything, but like being able to set the tone for a console generation is actually a sentiment a lot of developers kind of have when they're kind of a launch title. Like that's almost the exact same vernacular they use. Like we're setting the tone for 
the generation. It was in this time that Jason Jones and Halo series co-creator Marcus Leto, who recently released the game called Disintegration, decided that it would be best if Halo became a first-person shooter rather than a third-person shooter, as was already decided. They felt it could make the player connect more with the action and ultimately make Halo a significantly more enjoyable and immersive experience. That decision may seem like a no-brainer in hindsight, but first-person shooters on console were pretty rare and an extremely risky endeavor in that era. Before Halo, there was GoldenEye and Perfect Dark on the Nintendo 64, both games developed by Rare. Those were both successful and acclaimed games, but both of those games were considered pretty elementary in comparison to its competitors on PC like Quake and Unreal Tournament. If you've played a shooter on PC and played a shooter on console, then you kind of understand why 20 years ago they were a bit hesitant, you know? Even now, you're not going to be seeing console ports of Valorant. No, that's just <laughs> like, completely And different. even then, like, Counter-Strike Global Offensive had PS3 and Xbox 360 versions, and it's like, why? Some of, some FPSs are just designed for PC, so any console FPS was going to be under a lot of scrutiny, so the decision to swap from third person to first person was not made lightly. Even Bungie has gone under record saying that they're their own biggest critics when it comes to this kind of stuff, so it had to feel right on a controller, which was incredibly hard to do on its own, and they had to do it on completely untested and a brand new generation of hardware. Not to mention it had to feel good on the affectionately nicknamed Duke controller, which was notorious for its hilariously large size in comparison to its competitors like the DualShock 2. Just a beefy boy. The thing is, Microsoft didn't see Halo the same way Bungie did. Bungie saw Halo as something that could be a game changer for the industry, but to Microsoft, it was just one part of a larger launch slate. They had to have alternatives in case any one of their projects failed or if another one took off. It was entirely possible for Halo to be overlooked due to mismanagement or marketing money going toward another project. Halo was never a sure shot, even if it felt like it from the inside at times. And there was a reason it felt like a sure shot to Bungie. B30. B30 was the prototype for a level called the Silent Cartog- the Silent Cartographer, I don't want to mess that up, which is considered Ooh. by many to be the pinnacle of what Halo has to Halo 1 yep. has to offer. It's the thesis statement to the game. Yep. It's a huge environment with player-controlled vehicles, enemies to shoot. If you play Halo for the first time, the Silent Cartographer is the level that will probably make you understand why people fell in love with this game in the first place. It's the reason they call Halo's levels sandboxes. But to Bungie at the time, it was B30, and B30 was good. B30 made the team at Bungie see what Halo could be, and if Halo was Xbox's Halo car, then B30 was Halo's Halo. Then B30 was Halo's Halo. Tongue twister. Then B30 was Halo's Halo car. <laughs> but yeah, the Silent Cartographer is a great level, dude. That that entire level, like I with with Anniversary that came out and regular, I play it in non-Anniversary because just playing that just takes me back. It it was just that entire level and everything in that one cutscene where the ki where the chief kicks off that rock into that massive corridor and just it starts talking to Cortana. You're like, yeah. holy crap! Like, even oh. now. Like when I replayed so CE recently, I was just like, this is a very cool level. Another heartening part of Halo's development, other than the silent cartographer, was the role of the game's composer, Martin O'Donnell. Marty O'Donnell wasn't just the composer, he was also unofficially the sound director for Halo. He composed the music, but he also oversaw the implementation of the music and how it worked in conjunction with the gameplay and level design. He treated his music in Halo the same way a film composer would for their music in a movie. Everything had to be perfect, just the way it was intended. O'Donnell would actually sit with the level designers and play through levels with them, just 
just to make sure that his music was being implemented properly, dramatically increasing the importance of music and sound in the game. It's his direct involvement with the development process that has made his work on Halo as iconic as it is today. In fact, his work was so direct in Halo that O'Donnell himself was a part of the choir that sang the iconic opening to the main theme. However, there's one piece of the Halo Combat Evolved puzzle that hasn't been discussed yet. Multiplayer. But the mode that would become synonymous for many gamers with the Xbox and for Halo was actually one of the most tumultuous and stressful parts of Halo's development. Internally at Bungie and Redmond, the team was struggling big time with making Halo's multiplayer fun and to work properly. Xbox Live wouldn't be ready for the Xbox's launch, so they had to scrap everything in relation to that too. Work on multiplayer was going so poorly in fact, just four months before launch, Bungie completely scrapped the multiplayer mode for Halo and brought in developers from a studio that was mentioned earlier, Bungie West. Bungie West had just finished development on a third-person action game called Oni, which was released on PC, Mac, and PS2 in 2001. Have you played <gasps> Oni? No, but I but Oni oh, is in oh, Halo. I never, oh, oh, and I. I you never, never you made didn't that get connection that? when I was writing that. Oh my god, I'm an idiot. Yeah, dude, oh, and I. Because I don't even. I don't even See, think that's why Oni you have is like mentioned in Halo One. No, they don't talk about ONI till at least two or three. Yeah. It's for it's yeah, in Reach. It's got, like heavily in Reach, but and in the books. On Reach. But like yeah. they're just the name, yeah. right? Oh, they're, no, they're a private. Oni is like the science ring. It's like the science yeah. wing. Like Halsey is is Oni because the yeah. UNSC is like. But the it's Navy. called like the uh, yeah. Oni's like. I don't remember what the... I just played it, and I even remember making a note of like, oh, that's what Onimi stands for. But I never made that connection of... Office of Naval Intelligence. So yeah, it's like their science wing, essentially. It's the UNSCs. That's what they mean by naval. Yep, United Nations Space Command, and then the Office of Naval Intelligence. I never made that connection. Bungie West's game Oni is probably how they got the name Oni in Halo. Yep. Wow, thank you, Kiri. There you go. (laughs) Hey... I, I, this is see I can catch these things that's that's why I'm here we got into a bit yeah. of a lore discussion which isn't really what this podcast is about but I'm happy you did that after the acquisition of Bungie by Microsoft um, Bungie West had to f- rush to finish the game before handing over all intellectual property rights to Take-Two Interactive moving north to Redmond Take-Two as we know are the owners of Rockstar who make Grand Theft Auto they also own uh, NBA 2K they also own Bioshock they own a lot of very big franchises but they also have Oni, and they could probably make an Oni game, another Oni game if they wanted to. But Oni got pretty mixed reviews, but the team from Bungie West didn't have time to rest on their laurels and think about it too much. Halo was calling. The Bungie West team arrived in Redmond like the army of the dead in Return of the King. You like that one? Ugh, loved that. <laughs> loved <laughs> that. Multiplayer would I, I put that specifically for you, Keegan. Thank you. Ugh. Multiplayer <laughs> would have been cut entirely from Halo if it hadn't been for the Bungie West team that got absorbed into the Redmond studio. And the people from Bungie West didn't have to go to Redmond, but a lot of them did just because like, well, it's Bungie. The main team wanted multiplayer to stay, but cutting it was a very real possibility. It took months of crunch and staying overnight at the office to make the multiplayer we all know and love a reality, and it really came down to the wire. But the team knew that multiplayer is what completed Halo, and unified the entire experience into what they knew it could be. Jason Jones said in regards to the appeal of Halo, quote, it gave you this ability to become competent and then show your competence to your friends competitively or your friends cooperatively. That's kind of the beauty of the multiplayer, or just like everything in Halo, where it's like everything kind of feels the same gameplay-wise, and so you can get good at multiplayer and 
by proxy you kind of get good at single player too because you just get those like twitch reflexes in a way yeah. you start headshotting everything but then you learn how to but if you, it's the other way around you learn how to headshot everything and then you go to multiplayer it's like well I'm really good at aiming now so that's kind of why it's kind of translates pretty well this beautiful combination of modes the air was tense at Bungie in the months leading up to the game's release in late 2001 at E3 that year while they did receive a lot of positive attention many were concerned over the game's technical issues such as an alarmingly inconsistent frame rate My Microsoft also wanted to change the game's name in favor of something more akin to what gamers would expect from a shooter. Bungie wouldn't buckle though, so the two companies had to compromise, leading to the subtitle Combat Evolved being added to Halo's name, and that's how we got CE, um, Combat Evolved. In hindsight, that kind of works out because saying Halo CE kind of sounds cooler and more exclusive than saying Halo 1. It's like it's, a club. It is, but. and it's so funny because I remember being younger and we always called it Halo 1, and then like now that I'm older and like not an idiotic 10 year old i'm like oh no it's ce like it's CE. like it's only scrubs cooler. call it halo one like you're a noob if you call it halo one you feel, it's like a it's like an exclusive club it know? is because like, oh, like oh, and, yeah. and that's the thing I and i was CE. i always thought that was the weirdest thing too it's like why would they call their first game why would their first game have a subtitle like mm-hmm. that doesn't make sense like nobody does that even like i think I could be wrong, but even in the game's title, is it just Halo? No, it's 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 Halo Combat okay, Evolved. Okay, so they did they did add that to the game's title too. Yep, yep. Like in the game itself, because sometimes that's yep. actually in older games that has been the case where sometimes the name on the package won't actually be the name. Reflects like game. the title, just yeah, slightly different. You know, it won't be like a completely different title, but just like you could tell they added or took away something for marketing purposes. Yeah, but that's exactly how Combat Evolved got added. They just wanted how do we get people to know it's a it's a shooter? It's like y'all told us to name it Halo, or or like I, mean, I guess Microsoft didn't, but like a marketing team told us to name it Halo, and now marketing yeah. team's telling us to call it combat evolved but i guess that's an app name all things considered i mean yeah it makes sense like there wasn't anything like that it was different it was very sci-fi that's why it doesn't feel too weird calling it ce or just like combat evolved because like that's really what the game is yeah well that's like the one thing too where it's like you think about it and you're like i'm surprised people didn't didn't you know not call it halo but just called it oh dude you play do you play combat evolved <laughs> that's probably what microsoft wanted yeah honestly yeah i i think it's a it's an app's title all things considered. I agree. An unsung hero worth mentioning in the story of Halo's development is the former head of Xbox Game Studios' Ed Freeze, who really fought on Bungie's behalf to mar- Microsoft's market research teams. He understood Bungie's vision for the game, so he often ignored or never even relayed any market research whatsoever to the team so Bungie could stick to their vision of what they wanted the game to be. And I love that. I mean, I yeah. You don't get that. that. You like, don't get that now. nowadays with Microsoft yeah. or just like a lot of Any publishers in general. Yeah. You just feel like they, a lot of games just feel like almost focus tested to death. Oh yeah. Well, and that's the thing is you, you show something and people are like, wow, that was garbage. And it's like, you, don't, like, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, but instead of them being like, you don't get it. Goodbye. They go. Hmm. Yeah. I would like your opinion. And then that's how you get games that are designed to be as broadly appealing as possible, you know? But then, as people say, when you try to appeal to everybody, you end up appealing to nobody. Yep. You only really see behavior from that. I mentioned, like, PlayStation is really big on that. Like, just look at Death Stranding. And I know that game's on PC now, but, like, they really just gave Kojima money, and they're just like, you know what? Do whatever. We're not even going to worry about it until it's out. You (laughs) do you, boo. And, like, The Last of Us Part 2, like, that 
game's story is so controversial. I won't get into, you know, the details of why it's controversial or because that's a whole can of worms. Maybe we'll even do an episode on The Last of Us or Naughty Dog. One day. I would love to do that. A Naughty Dog story. But um, I really, I feel like Microsoft's kind of finally starting to do that more. Yeah. And I you're mean, kind of seeing that with Infinite where it's like, you can tell Infinite isn't really trying to be this magnificent showpiece game with, I mean, people are even like kind of shitting on it because the graphics oh, aren't great. yeah. But, but it's like, the people don't realize... Hey, I kind of applaud, well, because when you actually look at a lot, of, I've seen a lot of comparisons, like actually the, the art scheme is actually trying kind of evocative of CE because all the colors are super poppy and like they kind of want you to know like, okay, that's a yellow enemy. That's a red enemy. That's a, that has blue arm, you know, kind of the oh, way yeah. that all worked in the original games. Well, yeah. And they completely made a whole new engine. And also that, that was game. that was like a two month old build as yeah. of the time. So, but it's like Microsoft easily could have been like, no, this needs to be. We're not even going to show this until it's 4K, 60 FPS, ray tracing. You know, we need this needs to be the prettiest game ever made. But no, they're just like, hey, you have your vision for what it should look like. Here you go. But uh, back to... Anywho. Back to the story of Halo. The team at Bungie were still the masters of the last minute comeback like they were before Halo's reveal at Macworld 1999. We're in 2001 right now, just kind of centering us. The game's story was undergoing last minute rewrites. The cutscenes were finished so late that Martin O'Donnell only had three days to score them, and parts of levels were cut or reused to save time, as evident in those kind of circular rooms you see a lot of in Halo 1 with the arrows telling you where to go, but you still end up getting lost anyway. Yep. That's I noticed that replaying, I'm like, oh, they literally just put arrows on the ground saying, go here, idiot. And you still <laughs> don't know where the hell you're going. But by the time you've done like five of them, you're like, all right, I just, I know where to go. Yep. <laughs> Finally, though, after years of prototyping, genre changes, platform changes, financial peril, technical obstacles, and more, Halo Combat Evolved was released as a launch title simultaneously with the Microsoft Xbox on November 15th, 2001. And to no surprise to anyone listening to this, it was a huge commercial and critical success. Reviewers loved it, garnering tons of high scores from outlets like IGN, Edge, GameSpot, and Game Informer. Currently, it sits at a 97 on Metacritic, placing higher than esteemed games like Bioshock, Half-Life 2, Resident Evil 4, and The Elder Scrolls V Skyrim. I was actually surprised at how high its Metascore is, considering how kind of poorly that game's aged in some areas. Yeah, but I mean, just for, the, for what it was at the time, though, like yeah, that's... and plus, like, it's basing off of reviews from the time. and Exactly. Um, Halo CE also got tons of Game of the Year awards in 2001, too, and was widely considered to not only be the best shooter on consoles, but possibly the greatest shooter of all time, regardless of platform. Today, Halo Combat Evolved is seen as the FPS that truly modernized the genre and brought it to the 21st century. It basically created the modern FPS campaign and multiplayer experience that we now take for granted in games like Call of Duty, Battlefield, and more. It also spawned tons of clones from competitive most notably in the form of PlayStation's Killzone series, which was created in direct retaliation of the success of Halo. Everyone was just looking for their Halo killer, a testament to just how successful Halo was for that term to even be coined, Halo killer, you know? That was yeah. just, people needed to kill Halo if they had wanted a chance to survive. I mean, no one really did kill Halo, and they still it survived anyway. Itself. But, I mean, they didn't kill itself, it just kind of, <laughs> natural order of trends and yes. whatnot, and Bungie leaving as we'll discuss later. Master Chief was now the icon, the symbol for Xbox, even if neither Bungie nor Microsoft intended it to be that way in the first place. Halo even created an entire subsection of online content creation called Machinima, popularized in the hit web series Red vs. Blue, which was created entirely within Halo Combat Evolved and even started a company on its own, Rooster Teeth. Uh, you've probably seen at least some bits and pieces of Red vs. Blue. It's on Netflix. Yeah, I feel like 
anyone who was a fan of Halo in the early days has at least seen some of Red versus Blue. And they even have um, a Red versus Blue Easter egg in Halo 3. Yeah. Yep. I always stumble upon it on accident just because I get lost. (laughs) There's a. I'm in the Rooster Teeth. There's a red versus blue achievement in, I think, Halo 4 or something like that. What, but in one of the newer games, they put an achievement in that refers to it. So I'm not really up to date on Rooster Teeth, but like they kept going even... They're still making seasons. They literally actually last week or two weeks ago announced that they're coming out with a new season. And you'd think that with all the critical success and legacy, Halo would have sold like absolute crazy at launch. And it did all right, but most of Halo's sales came after the fact in the months and years after it and the Xbox's launch. The attach rate for Halo was the truly impressive impressive part, however. Nearly half of all Xboxes sold in the months after its launch were sold with a copy of Halo in hand. It's like a Mario Kart 8 and the Wii U. Pretty much everyone who bought an Xbox bought it with Halo. Yep. Um, it was clear that Halo was why many people were buying an Xbox in the first place. By July 2006, Halo Combat Evolved had sold over 4 million copies, making over $170 million in sales. And it's so funny that like, 4 million copies, that's crazy. The Last of Us Part 2 made that much in its opening weekend. Yeah. <laughs> sold 4 million copies in three days so it's just like yeah how it just shows you how much larger the audience for video games has gone where like at the time five years was what it took to get four million copies and it's like oh my god yeah it's like three days four million copies but also games are way more expensive to make now so like yeah it's still impressive but not as impressive as it would have been <laughs> it definitely wouldn't have been would have been more impressive if they sold four million copies in three days back in 2001 than <laughs> 2020. Oh god, couldn't even imagine how much that game would have sold if it sold that much. Oh, it would have been the next, they would have treated it like even more like Star Wars than they did. A port of the game for Windows and Mac was released by Gearbox Software in 2003, adding even more financial success to the game's name. I, I will say, in, in in its entirety, I've bought, in, in, I've bought in it four times. <laughs> I bought it the original time for the original Xbox, a PC, I got oh, it on a PC, I got the anniversary, and I got it on MCC. Yeah. I mean, does that count, though? Because you're getting, like, four games. Uh, it, it still is. I mean, I'm st- it's still there. <laughs> oh, you're going to like this pun. Bungie was now the king of the hill at Microsoft ha! Game Studios. Get and it? their name was now known across the world. Before Halo, Bungie was known as the Mac guys. Now they're being seen as, in the same light as the legendary studios that belong to their competition, like Naughty Dog or Polyphony Digital. So, where do you go after releasing an instant classic and selling millions of copies? Well, right to the bank, first of all, but after that, it's sequel time. So, I don't know if this was added in in later copies of CE, or if it was right away. I doubt it was right away, but I remember going through the options in on my Xbox and go playing through Halo through CE, and in the options, they had a trailer for Halo 2, and this was like a pre-cut. Well, because Xbox Live would have been a thing. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe they put it on there later Even on. Even though, like, Halo CE, you couldn't play it over Xbox could you? No, I don't think so. It was only local play, or like local yeah. network. And I don't think still, I was connected to the, the internet. The Xbox itself had Xbox Live, so yeah. I bet like around 2004 when Xbox Live was more officially implemented, they were like, it's the same way you play like, I'm trying to think of a game, an example, but like, well, I mean like, you go back and you play like an older Call of Duty, and it's like, buy Call of Duty whatever out now, you know? A very early example of that. Yeah, but I, I just remember watching it, and I don't know if you've ever seen the trailer. It's, it's actually a really cool trailer seeing the br for the first time because it it was the br was a was a single shot when you were zoomed in and then it was a burst when you were zoomed out which is actually funny because that's what the light rifle 
in Halo 4. Yeah, so it's actually pretty cool. But anyway, just well, thought we'll, I'd throw we'll that in. We'll talk about the battle rifle. Later. Yeah. Um, a sequel to Halo CE would give would both give Bungie the opportunity to expand on what they established with Combat Evolved and add in ideas that were cut, as well as give Microsoft another huge success. It was a no-brainer on both sides. As early as 2002, word was already getting out that Bungie was working on Halo 2. This game would be big, ambitious, quote, 72 times more fun than Halo 1, Chris Butcher, engineering director at Bungie said jokingly, but also not jokingly, because as you'll see, Bungie was very ambitious with Halo 2. Bungie wanted to redo the game engine, triple the amount of in-game content, change the physics engine, revolutionize visual fidelity, change the way we play video games online. New enemy types, new weapons, new environments, characters voiced by Keith David and Ron Perlman. Halo 2 was a hugely ambitious game right from the outset, and the team quickly realized after starting that there would be a lot they'd have to leave on the cutting room floor, much to their dismay. Do shout out to Lord Hood. Dude, yeah. Who is Keith David? Keith David voiced the Arbiter. Oh, oh, hell yeah. Shout out to Keith David, dude. Oh, iconic voices. I, I, I thought that's what it was, but yeah. Kill me or release me, Parasite. But do not waste my time with talk. Despite the limitations they'd have imposed on them, Bungie still made it their primary objective to one-up Halo CE at every single possible opportunity. At the very least, they wanted more environmental and level design diversity after the first game was criticized for having too many repetitive areas and encounters, like those circular rooms with the arrows I mentioned earlier. They also sought to innovate the way stories were told in first-person shooters, doubling down on Halo's cinematic presentation, deep lore, and world building. Another product of Bungie's ambition was in the introduction of a second playable protagonist, the Arbiter, as we mentioned earlier. Halo 2 would flip the script on the player and make them play as one of the antagonists from the first game, a covenant elite. Aren't they called like Sang... Sangheli. Yeah, that's the actual name. Um, this was a bold and ambitious step for Bungie that 100% had the possibility to blow up in their face as evident in a recent game where you played as the antagonist. Um, but it's that bold, somewhat subversive step in that made Bungie so respected. Not just in the eyes of first-person shooter enthusiasts, but also gamers who just love a good story. I, I just remember that and I was like, I remember like playing that first mission I was like, what the hell? Why am I an elite? I was pissed. I was so pissed. That's, yeah, I mean, like, I don't want to spoil what game I'm talking about, but that's literally the arc you have in a recent game where you play as an antagonist. Like, I don't want to play as this person, I'll play as the guy I know. Exactly. But then you jump down and the energy sword ignites, and then you're like, okay, cool, all right. Yeah, it's literally the same in both, I actually want to make, I was thinking about making a video, um, documenting kind of, like, the similarities between not only the story's way of having you play as an antagonist, but also fan reaction. She's like, why? Well, I don't want to play as the bad guy. And then by the end, you're like, this character's great. Exactly. And then Arbiter shows up in Halo 3, and it's like, oh, yeah, it's the Arbiter. <laughs> you're like, my dude, what up? It's like, how did that happen? <laughs> so um, good. One area from Halo 1, Halo CE, I'm sorry, that got a complete overhaul, though, was multiplayer. No longer was this a side project led by a handful of guys in their spare time during development. This was going to be a huge investment. The goal was to create something Bungie called a virtual couch, an in-game area where players could, would wait in what we now know as lobbies and play against similarly skilled players in game modes of their choosing. Halo Combat Evolved created the modern first-person shooter structure or format that we now know, but Halo 2 created the modern multiplayer experience that we now know. In fact, Halo 2 pretty much created Xbox Live as we know it too. In-game parties, friends lists, a messaging system, matchmaking, voice chat, Bungie worked very closely with Microsoft's internal development team to form a project co-named Tsunami. Tsunami was basically the architecture that made Halo 2's, like, features possible. And, yeah, 
it's so funny you listen to those features and it's like yeah every game has that but at the yeah. time that was just like I, I love the uh, there's a promo video for Xbox Live it's like I'm talking they c- I have a I can hear them and they can hear me it's like that's the great thing about Xbox Live it's <laughs> so funny chat, you know <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's so old dude they can hear me and I can hear them. That's the coolest thing about Xbox Live, the voice. You don't you don't really see any big innovations in multiplayer until like Call of Duty 4 comes out and even then that's not even that close to like all the things Halo 2 did. Like, they changed a lot, but like Call of yeah, Duty 4 it, was... it added like RPG elements where you level you get XP for getting kills and you get level XP. up and you call in airs, yep. you know kill streaks and all. That was like pretty That was pretty sweet. That was freaking awesome. But it's like Halo 2 literally was like the first game with voice chat. It's like, yep. how do you top that? You know, in terms of like technological revolution and innovation in games, it's hard to top the the things that Halo 2 has done in terms of online, you know, like a lot of Japanese games are credited with like making the industry what it is, but like straight up Halo 2, like you don't really see modern games without Halo 2. Yep. However, Bungie's commitment to multiplayer often came at the behest of the developers working on the single player campaign. Resources had to be put into either one or the other, and if something went toward the campaign team, the multiplayer felt scorned and vice versa. As with any game, they were on a limited schedule and budget, so they couldn't exactly throw everything they had at both modes at the same time. There was a multiplayer mode that was eventually cut that was actually strikingly similar to what would become standard in Call of Duty, and coincidentally enough, that mode was called Warfare. Call of Duty Modern Warfare. <laughs> the idea was to have small, arena-based maps with squads of online players that could call in things like airstrikes to assist them in battle. Sound familiar? So like, even though COD, how I just described how Call of Duty 4 was this big revolutionary revolution because it had like killstreaks and stuff like that, Halo 2 was already kind of experimenting with that. They just cut it, which is crazy. It just shows you how ahead of the curve Bungie has always been. Like, there's stuff that they wanted to put in Halo 2 that wouldn't get put in games until three years later. Yeah, a long time. That never happened, but the promise of Halo 2's multiplayer and of Halo 2 in general was still wildly ambitious. Every showing of the game at trade shows like E3 only made people more and more excited to get their hands on it. The people were extremely excited for what they felt would become the next greatest shooter of all time. But things weren't exactly exciting back at Bungie. In fact, things were actually moving backwards if you ask some of the employees who worked at Bungie at the time. Normally, E3 is a big morale boost for the developers after they see the excited reactions to their game, but Bungie was left feeling disappointed and empty after the only thing they really had for Halo 2 after E3 was a demo that they'd have to scrap anyway. Everyone was so excited for something that wasn't even going to be in the game, and so any victory at E3 that year felt hollow for Bungie. Back then, it was common for E3 stuff to, like, not even be in the final game. It's hard to convince developers, especially nowadays, to make something that's gonna get cut, you know? So, like, back then, it was really kind of just slapped to the face, like, we went through all that effort to make this work, this prototype work, and now we have to delete it all because it's not going to work in the final product yeah it's i mean i, I don't remember too much of that but i'm sure if i went back and watched some of those old e3 oh it's demos and whatnot like you'd be like oh wow they they had um a part where a brute hijacks the warthog oh no yeah yeah um, and they're like it's like it the documentary is so good because it would show like the the audience reaction of like oh that's so sick how they the the, the enemy like hijacked the vehicle that was so cool i can't wait to do that and then it cuts back to bungie yeah that was entirely scripted and we're gonna have to cut that part yeah which they didn't put that into halo 3 actually i think that is that's the demo i was talking about 
Yeah. The, if I remember correctly, that's the demo that was yeah, in the Halo demo. One. That was in the oh, CE. Oh yeah, that, that, I yeah, think that, that was. I think that was it. Yeah. Because it had the drop pods of all the elites at the end. Yeah. Hijacking wasn't until Halo Three. No, Halo Two. Hijacking was in Halo Two. Yep, Halo Two had hijacking, but in Halo Two, I'm pretty sure they couldn't hijack and get in they would basically just throw you out in halo 3 that's when they would throw you out and get well that in. was like what kind of but like what happened in the demo was like a brute literally like lands on the hood of the warhog and yeah throws and then the guy throws out. it and off and you're shooting yeah. it like wild it's yeah like, ah! you know, it's definitely a lot more cinematic so they definitely had bigger plans with that than what was eventually implemented but yeah. back to the tumultuous cycle of halo 2 early on in the development of halo 2 alex seropian co-founder of bungie left bungie to return home to chicago some say he just wanted to spend time with his family. Others say he was fed up with the development process. Either way, things were being shaken up at Bungie. It also didn't help that Jason Jones, the other co-founder of Bungie, wasn't working on Halo 2 at the start. Instead, he wanted to oversee a project called Phoenix, a rumored fantasy strategy game that was eventually canceled after Jones later realized his efforts were more needed on Halo 2. Um, not much is really known about Project Phoenix. That's why I don't really go in on it. It's probably just like a spiritual successor to Myth was kind of was probably the idea. Because I believe another publisher actually owns the license to myth because i think there was a myth 3 that was made but bungie didn't make it hmm. but again this is the story of halo but so bungie wasn't being led by the people the team had depended on for so long at first halo 2 was actually being held by a committee of bungie employees it was in the absence of seropian and jones's leadership that the team working on halo 2 quickly realized that a lot of their ambitions for the game were simply not possible in fact almost everything they showed at e3 was completely scrapped for the final product halo 2 was actually supposed to come out in 2003 just two years after Halo CE, but Bungie had to make the decision to delay the game by a whole year, which is, like, devastating to them, but nowadays, like, delaying a game That's, is so common. Yeah. But it's probably because they already announced the 2003 release date, and there's like, oh. Yeah. Whereas, like, now, like, a lot of games, probably, it was more common for, like, we don't even, like, they don't know that we're delaying this. <laughs> we know we're delaying it, but people don't. Um, but Bungie simply wasn't confident in the direction the game was going, and a lot of their work was started again from scratch. The graphics engine was scrapped, and the environments they had were too big, so those had to go too. Assets had to be implemented on a trial and error basis, dramatically slowing down development speed. Meanwhile, the pressure on the team from Xbox was growing after Halo 1 was selling so well. Bungie was not a fun place to work at during Halo 2's development, and they were having to heavily consider consider what content would get cut and what would stay. There was never really any intent for Halo to be a trilogy from the outset either, so it truly felt like a failure to have to cut even more stuff from Halo 2 after making it their mission statement to base Halo 2 on not only working with cut content from one, but building on it. So to cut content again for another day down the line felt like a real slap in the face, but it was the decision that ultimately needed to be made. Which, as you'll see in future episodes of this podcast, not wanting to cut content but needing to do it anyway will be a common recurring theme. In game development. The entire third act of the game, a climactic battle on Earth, was completely cut and set aside, which is the beginning of Halo 3. Weird. Yeah, the story was rewritten, and the character and character arcs were changed. And for Bungie, the hardest part was knowing that everyone else knew that they were cutting content this time. If you were reading magazines, on internet forums, or wherever, you knew that Bungie was axing the final act of the game, which seemed insane at the time. It's how we got the now infamous ending of Halo 2 that ends on one of the biggest cliffhangers in gaming history. Master Chief, you mind telling me what you're doing on that ship? Sir, finishing this fight. In hindsight, it's a pretty badass ending, but like, yeah. at the time when you didn't even know if there was going to be a Halo 3, it's like, what? I honestly I remember 
beating Halo 2 and being like, wait, this is it? And I was like, is Halo 3 announced yet? Exactly. Dude, I remember that. I, I remember everyone felt being a like, kid. Are we getting Halo? Like, the fact that nobody really even knew if Halo 3 was going to be a thing just made it so, like, uh... But I think if they had already said, like, we're making Halo 3, don't worry, then people would have been like, all right, let's go. Halo 3, baby. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty smart. They didn't do that, though. Nope. <laughs> but if it hurt for gamers to accept that, it was absolutely torturous for Bungie. But it was what they had to do to ship the game on time and with everything else like the multiplayer intact. Despite being plagued by countless issues and months of crunch, Bungie finally crossed the finish line and released Halo 2 on November 9th, 2004. And guess what? It was a huge success. <laughs> but it wasn't just a huge success in comparison to Bungie's previous work and Halo CE. It was a huge success in the eyes of the entire industry. Despite the cuts, the internal issues, everything, it didn't deter how freaking excited people were to buy and play Halo 2. Mainstream news was reporting on its staggering pre-order numbers. Stockholders invested in Microsoft in anticipation for the game's success. This thing was going to be an entertainment launch the world had never seen before, and it was an Xbox exclusive game. You didn't get Halo 1 until after, until the 360 was out, so you probably weren't like in line to buy Halo 2. No, I mean, but, and I, I didn't mean, get like, Halo 2 until after either. But so. we still, like, in 2004, we still felt, like, the reverberations of all that. I hype. remember, like, some stuff with it, like, how big that was, like, how big well, it like, was. Every kid at school had a copy, you know? It was like, yeah. Not every kid, but, like, everyone knew someone who had a copy. Oh, yeah. And, and obviously, I remember Halo 3 is more, and when we get to yeah. that next well, episode, that's gonna be something. that'll be, like, that's going to be, you know, a lot better because we were more into it then. But, but like, yeah, it just I remember. like, you hear a lot of stories of, like, I skipped school to get the collector's edition of Halo twos yeah like, sorry i don't have any stories like that no we, we were, were too young we, we were, were in elementary school <laughs> i was 10 dude i don't i don't really remember much you know how i talked about how four million copies in a weekend would be crazy for the yeah. time four million copies were sold outgrossing even some of the biggest films premiering that same weekend like pirates of the caribbean 2 i don't remember was that four Admiral's? million or 2.4 Oh, did I mess that up? Yeah, it was within the first 24 hours after the game's launched. 2.4 oh, million I, copies I, were sold. You, you cut out a little bit. A yep. part. Um, I skipped a part. Within the first 24 hours after the game's launch, over 2 million copies were sold. I just missed that missed that part. But eventually, 4 million copies were sold, outgrossing even the blah, blah, blah. But Halo 2 instantly became the highest grossing entertainment product in history, more than any film, album, a video game, now had that record. By November 2008, Halo 2 had sold over 8 million cop copies, doubling the amount sold by its predecessor. To say Halo 2 was a success is a vast understatement. Any feelings of disappointment Bungie may have had about the game itself were more than likely quickly alleviated after the game returned such insane sales numbers. Halo 2 instantly became the most popular game on Xbox Live and stayed that way until 2006 when Gears of War came out. Reviewers lauded it for its contributions to both shooters and gaming as a whole. The Game of the Year awards reigned in once again for Bungie as Halo 2 set the stage for all FPS games yet to come. We already talked about how huge Halo 2 was and how important it was, so I don't think we need to go on again about that. But Basically, it was pretty nuts. <laughs> Skill-based matchmaking, just matchmaking in general where you could select a specific game mode. That was huge, you know? I, we also talked about it wasn't until Call of Duty 4 when you'd see another big shakeup. Yeah. And Halo 2 may have single-handedly popularized online multiplayer and console. It may be single-handedly responsible for Xbox Live being a thing. Yeah. But Bungie was still hungry. Even though Halo 2 was the peak in many people's 
eyes and still is the peak in their eyes today, Bungie still felt an obligation to make right the issues they themselves had with Halo 2. There was a whole final act missing, and Bungie even felt that the multiplayer was, quote, a pale shadow of what it could and should have been, according to engineering lead Chris Butcher. There was still ground they could break, horizons to be chased, scarabs to jump on and destroy from the inside. Scarabs are the tanks, right? Scarabs are the Covenant giant purple spider tanks yes i got that right scare us to jump on and destroy from the inside bungie had a lot of work left to do a third act to tell in the halo story it was time to finish the fight Oof. and that's where we'll pick up next time this has been random access memories hosted by wade ronspies and keegan ailers keegan that was a lengthy show but i'm glad we got through it me too it was fun i you know i always love talking about stuff and halo obviously like you said that's that's my stuff I, and we I learned love... some stuff today i mean you did because i already wrote i wrote the script but <laughs> i already knew but <laughs> you, you did too the only thing yeah well yeah oh that is true yeah. that is true we did yeah. we, we did learn some things today we we, we learned things mm -hmm. i just want to reiterate that like this is more the story of halo specifically not the story of bungie so sorry if i didn't talk about their origins a bit more more in depth and we're not going to be talking about Bungie any or we're not going to be talking about Destiny um, since that is after they let go of Halo spoilers I guess and like Destiny is kind of part of the story of Halo because they were working on Destiny all the way back in like during ODST and definitely Reach yeah in Reach you can find posters with the Traveler from Destiny on it I remember that they knew Destiny was coming but we're that's about the only mention of Destiny I'm probably going to do just because it's not you know after Reach, we're going to go to 343. You know, just how the story of Halo, not the story of Bungie, sadly. Maybe someday. Thank you for listening to Random Access Memories, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you want more, check out our previous episodes and or subscribe to the show on the podcast platform of your choice. This podcast was produced by Ron's Pies on YouTube, so please check the channel out, subscribe, and share the show. You can follow me on Twitter at WadeLikesPie and Keegan at Key underscore Gan underscore Jin. See you next time.